Welcome back to the From Field to Play podcast. My name is Jeremiah Dowdy, and today I'm here with my good buddy, Matt. Matt, go ahead and introduce yourself so everyone can get to know who you are, and then we're going to dive right into it. I'm the Lieutenant uh, Specialist uh, for the CalTIP program. My name is Matthew Shanley, and I've been, I was the office or the field officer in, in Beaumont, Riverside County for 10 years, and now I've been out in Blythe for approximately 10 years, and I've just bumped up to this Lieutenant Specialist position, and I'm excited to be here with you, Jeremiah. So... That was a lot of fancy words for you work with fish and wildlife and you're a part of fish and wildlife for a long time. And I think that's a big thing because here in the state of California and all over, if you are a hunter or a fisherman, fish and wildlife guys are there to keep you safe, are there to maintain the laws, to keep animals and habitat and all that good stuff. And it was kind of fun because you and I have met as we're sitting here talking, we have met so many times and never realized we had actually met until last year I was duck hunting uh, and I was walking these levees by myself and you came pulling up in your car and we just sat and talked for like an hour and it was hotter than heck and I don't think any ducks were flying, but I needed a break from the family and, and we just kind of hit it off and became good friends real quick. And so thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for doing this podcast. Um, and kind of just off the bat, we'll start off with uh, a couple questions. A lot of listeners and people on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook uh, had questions for fish and wildlife agents and weeding through a lot of them picked what I think are some of the best ones and some of the most impactful ones for hunters in, in our state as well as anywhere else you're listening. I think, as you can agree, fish and wildlife in a whole, you're all pretty much the same. doesn't matter if you're working in Texas or Wyoming or Oklahoma. Everyone I've met have been pretty straightforward. So Right off the bat, what made you want to become, um, you know, a game officer or a uh, field, you know, fish and wildlife? Well, I, I, I always had uh, a big interest in the outdoors and uh, uh, fishing and hunting. And uh, my parents came from subsistent farms in Ireland, and I was born and raised in San Francisco. So my access to fishing was the ocean beach for stripers and Lake Merced and a few local lakes. And then, of course, Dad and I went out on charter boats to go salmon fishing. And then I went to uh, UC Davis, got my degree in wildlife biology, also joined the Marine Corps and uh, was, I had a difficult decision deciding whether I wanted to go to the officer candidate school or become a wildlife officer. But after working at the wildlife investigations lab and the Nimbus fish hatchery and having a game warrant application placed on the desk in front of me while the officer candidate school was process was going through with the Marine Corps, just happened to work out that uh, things went very smoothly with regard to fish and wildlife. And I went that route. And what are your feelings on, on that career? Are you excited? That, are you glad you chose that path or was there something else that you think you could have chosen? Over the course of my 23 years with fish and wildlife, I've constantly thought of this as the best job in the world. And I'm reminded of that by hunters who feel the same way, who often I get hunters who say they've always wanted to be a fish and wildlife officer. And uh, it allows me to, not take the job for granted when I hear that and appreciate the fact that I've chose this career. Yeah. I mean, I was going to get into law enforcement and then through that finding out I'm colorblind and everything else, I was like, Oh, I'll go become a game warden. And then the year that I was going to do that was the year that they made the same rules and regulations as law enforcement with colorblindness. And I was like, ah, so, but I mean, you have a great job, but I think mine's pretty, I think mine might be the best one because I still get to fish and hunt and eat and cook every single day. You just have to go patrol. But you and I, we're in the same line of work, and I think it's, that's that's why we get it. That's why we get along and um, get going. So let's let's jump into this. You kind of mentioned that you grew up hunting and fishing, so I take it you're still a hunter and you still hunt and get out there and enjoy this amazing California state as well. Yeah, so I like hunting upland game along the Colorado River and waterfowl, and I've hunt locally for big game for deer and go up to Utah with uh, friends I've made through work throughout the years. And uh, that's there's no other way to enjoy this country more than to you know, travel and, and uh, see what you know the different states and opportunities have for you. Now, you have kids about the same age as my kids. Have you introduced your kids into hunting and fishing? I know fishing, yes, I've seen pictures of them catching catfish and having fun, but have you introduced them to the hunting world as well? Yes, they love going dove hunting with me and sitting on the tailgate while I hunt dove. And uh, when I 
kill a deer and bring it home to dress it, then uh, my daughter loves to do that with me. And uh, my son, who's six now, he's less enthusiastic about it, but uh, I think he's uh, heading that way soon. He's still in that you grow stage when you, when you, so my six-year-old was huge on it. Now she's going to be nine. And then like seven and eight, she was like, oh, it's so gross. And now she's like, I think I want to go gut a deer. And so I think it's kind of that, like that maturity level as they're like, oh, cool. And then it's like, oh, gross. Wait, no, it, it is kind of cool. So does it, is it hard for you? Like I mean, dove season opens tomorrow here in the state of California. Is it hard for you to be on patrol and not like opening morning of a season or are you just used to it because you've never had an opening morning of a season well with this pr- promotion my schedule has changed so so i'm looking forward to having a few more days off to hunt and then there'll be another wildlife officer assigned to this area to cover cover it um but uh i will be patrolling this uh year as well and uh i do um enjoy the small windows opportunity i have to hunt so yeah, it's, 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 that's one of the downfalls with regard to fish and wildlife. Um, the job is sometimes you're, you're, uh, required to work when the hunt is on in your area. Yeah. So I have a friend who is in, uh, Colorado and he always has to patrol during elk season. And he goes, the hardest part is it's not even, I'm not even patrolling like elk hunters. I'm patrolling mountain lion kills. <laughs> I have to go like you know, because I don't know if you have to do that much here with kills. If there's, say, a sheep farmer, a coyote or something kills it, you have to go out and verify that it's killed by a wild animal. I know that in a lot of states they do, so that they can get reimbursed from the state for that animal that was killed by a mountain lion or a bobcat or something. Do you guys do that here too? Uh, definitely. So we work with the environmental scientists, and it, at, at, it depends what state you're in. So sometimes they um, are wildlife managers where they have every responsibility with regard to that to confirm that it's a mountain lion kill, for example, and then, uh, you know, issue a depredation permit and go from there. Um, in the Blythe area, we don't have as many depredation kills from, um, predator species, but I was just speaking to a wildlife officer who came out from Santa Clarita for the dove opener. And, uh, she's been dealing with, um, coyote attacks and mountain lion um, issues recently. So that's definitely something we deal with. Right. It's just crazy when you, you, a lot of people just think of the guy that drives around in a green, black or white truck, you know, and hassles you when you're trying to shoot a dove or catch a fish. But I think your job is a lot, there's a lot more entails to it. So let's get back into the questions. What do you think is one of the biggest mistakes you see with new hunters or even veteran hunters in the field as an officer driving around and checking people out? I think it would be uh, to rather than make a decision, and go for it. If you're not sure of what you're doing, then stop and, you know, talk. You can always call the local game warden or more experienced hunter before you make a bad decision. So if you're unsure, if you're going to cross a barbed wire fence, for example, and you don't know whose property that belongs to on the other side of it, the best thing to do is don't cross the fence until you learn whose property that is. If, um, you're, if you're waterfowl hunting and, um, you haven't gone out and can identify all your species of waterfowl, then, you know, stop, don't pull the trigger until you can identify a Drake Mallard. And then, you know, only shoot the birds you intend to, can identify and kill. So it's more has to do with, you know, be confident and um, know what you're doing before you actually do it. Which is funny because I just had a buddy last week. He went up to uh, A-Zone Deer Opener up near like Jamestown area in central Northern California. And he was out there. He stuck a deer. It was a not, not a good shot. Uh, and he's calling me. He's freaking out because he watched the deer. He had, he had permission to hunt property and the deer jumped a fence and bedded underneath a tree. And he's freaking out because he has no idea. He doesn't know that property owner. And he's like, you know, do I just jump the fence? I'm like, no, you don't jump the fence. Don't go over there. I go get on Onyx, find out who the landowner is. See if you can get a hold of him. If not, call the local fish and wildlife and they'll come over and they'll help you out. He's, he was so nervous because he didn't want to get in trouble. And I'm like, it's, it's not your fault the deer jumped the fence, right? It, you can't control where it goes. And finally, he ended up calling the officer, and they came out and, and helped him. But I think there's, you know, he was, he was so nervous about calling to get in trouble. When, like you said, if you don't know, just ask. And you guys are here to be honest and open with us. And, and it's not like you shot it on that property. It's not, you know. Right. And wildlife officers want to see everyone have a legal, safe, and successful hunt. And so, you know, we're... we're for the most part, we're all conservationists, and we want to see do uh, uh, be successful in the field. Yeah, and you don't want to see a, a wounded animal sitting there suffering either. You want to be able to go and 
and two. And I remember I was on a hunt one time where the it was a a turkey. We shot it, and it ran and it fell right on the other side of the fence. And first, was reaching over and grabbing it. I said, "Let's just call." And I remember the warden's like, "Well, actually, hold, let me drive the fence line because he was close." He watched through the fence line, watched us pick it up. He waved at us, and and we were good to go because he he saw the bird right there, and he saw where the feathers, you know, how it had flopped on that side of the fence. And it was the same deal. It wasn't like, oh, well, it's that guy's bird now. You're, you're out of luck. And he goes, I know the landowners. You guys are fine. Just don't go on the property. You know, reach over and grab it. Great. So I think it's I've – no, I've always been encouraged by asking for help and calling. And even for you, I mean, last year I was talking to you about stuff. Hey, what is, what is the reg- regulation on this area um, and getting 100% on, on that area itself too? So kind of continuing with that, what do you think the best type of hunting is to introduce new hunters to? Adult or kids, because I know we've got, we have 50, no, 20 guys coming out to hunt with us total. I think like eight of them are brand new hunters from a 10-year-old to a 48-year-old. So, I think it's the most important thing for young hunters to be paired up with a, a good mentor and a, a patient hunter who doesn't have to, who makes good decisions, who uh, has a lot of experience, can identify game correctly, and uh, is very safety oriented when it comes to pulling the trigger, whether it's a shotgun or a rifle. So uh, Dove out here in Blythe is a great um, example of hunting where you can sit in a seat. You don't have to walk. You can stay in one place and, and that increases the amount of safety to a younger hunter who's just learning. They can sit next to you and, and you can talk through a hunt with them. No, I agree. And I tell everyone same thing. I think upland game hunting is the best for new hunters just for the fact that you don't have to be quiet. You don't have to be still. There's not, you know, a bird comes in, you can really take the time to get them on shouldered properly, the stance proper before that bird, you know, cause a lot of times you're seeing a dove fly from, you know, hundred yards away as you're watching them come in. And so really getting it set up. So I agree. I think upland game, even rabbits, small rabbits and, and quail and stuff along that line is great to introduce new hunters to. Uh, and get them involved with that. And I know there's a lot of programs that states offer. I know our state offers a ton of programs for new hunters with in, in, in regards to pheasant hunts, uh, quail. They, they have dove hunts. You can apply for dove hunts, quail hunts, um, and mentor hunts along the line, along the lines of that. And uh, we were even talking about possibly getting another one started up down here. So um, there are lots of options. We'll talk about that, about that later. But... Um, have you seen a net increase uh, in upland game habitat throughout your career or a decrease, do you think? So my first assigned area was in Beaumont right. and Riverside, Western Riverside County, and I've seen the amount of track homes and development go up and explode. So I think when I moved there, there were approximately 7,000 to 9,000 people in the city of Beaumont, and I believe it's over 60,000 now. So I've seen, in that specific area, I've seen it decrease. And I remember as a young wildlife officer patrolling with a more experienced wildlife wildlife officer who always explained to me, I used to hunt these fields, but now they're all developed. I didn't quite grasp that until I could drive through the area I first patrolled and see the exact same thing happen. Yeah. he's. If you've ever been out here, you're driving down the 60 freeway. And on the if you're driving towards where we're talking about, like Arizona, Colorado River, where the 60 and the 10 meet, it used to just be rolling fields as long as you could think. And now there's houses and Walmarts and Targets and Kmarts and you name it. I know even down in San Jacinto, there's big fights about them taking away the wildlife, you know, the the, up, the waterfowl hunting and trying to plant, you know, or trying to put track homes and trying to put, I think the plan was like a Target and a Best Buy and something else. And it's, it's sad. But I've also seen me personally growing up here, seeing what you guys have done on the Colorado River for habitat maintenance is increased because it used to just be dirt fields and farms. Now there's trees and habitats for deer, bobcat, mountain lion, quail, pheasant, you know, there's even, you know, you see everything you can think of off of, you know, second Ave in all those trees. So I think maybe a decrease over, but I think habitat, you guys are reintroducing habitat in other places, correct? Yeah. I think the department's done a great job at developing the land available to them, especially at the Palo Verde Ecological Reserve, where they've uh, planted willows and cottonwoods and seen them, you know, mature and draw herds of deer. Um, deer now cross the river on a regular basis between 
the agricultural fields in Arizona and the ecological reserve in California. And, you know, when you have more habitat, you have more um, successful populations of animals. And I've seen an increase in deer exponentially just being, I mean, I've been hunting here for 33 years of my life and just seeing, watching them plant those trees and watching the trees mature and grow and then watching the deer population and the dove population and even the quail. I think that the, the quail population here has exploded in the past 10 to 15 years prior to what it was that I remember. I, I don't ever remember seeing quail growing up, but maybe along the river, but now they're along every levee along. So I think it's kind of, kind of a fun thing to watch the expansion and, and growth of it along that line. So, uh, another question that people had here is what, what three hunting rules do you think are the most important? So I think it, when it comes to hunting rules, I think the most important have to do with safety. hundred percent. And, and so the one would be point your rifle or shotgun in a safe direction. And that would be the first thing, you know, young hunters should learn. And number two is don't put your finger on the trigger unless you are ready to intentionally squeeze that trigger to and while you're aimed at what you intend to hit. And then third is it's not a requirement in California, but it is a requirement in several states is hunter orange. I think that's a wonderful um, bit of safety. Young hunters and um, less experienced hunters can um, ins- help ensure their safety if they're using hunter orange in the field. You know, if, whether it's uh, it could be for the purpose of you might be encroaching on another hunter you don't see in a dove field while you're walking along the edge of it and you don't know they're there. Or if you're out in the Chuckwalla Mountains hunting deer and you're not familiar with the area and you don't know, um, you haven't done enough uh, scouting to see what exactly the deer pattern is. And you don't want to encroach on another hunter who's been set up all morning. And if they see you before you see them, then that makes it safer for you. Right. And I know there's a lot of a lot of down talk on blaze orange with, you know, deer can see orange and, and there's so many States, like you think about Maine where you have to have like 93% of your body covered in orange, right? Like your face, face, hands and feet don't need to be covered. And those guys are still whacking deer and killing deer. And I think it's all about the, the, the safety. And I, I agree with you hundred percent. And it's funny because you and I both teach our, our young ones, the rules of safety is around firearms and bow and arrows and you name it. Right. And we were out here hunting and my 11 year old and this, this adult was walking by and he had his finger on the trigger. I remember she walked over and like, goes, excuse me, sir, can you please take your finger off the trigger? Cause he was walking with, wow. the, he was walking with the gun up. It was in a safe position, but he had his finger. If he would have tripped or stumbled or fell, he could have, you know, and it was just, it was a proud dad moment. You're like, yes, all right, she's, <laughs> she gets it. You know, even my nephew, we were out shooting BB guns in the desert or pellet guns and he kept putting his finger on the trigger. And I kept flicking his ear, I'm like, don't put your finger on the trigger until you're ready to shoot, right? And then I walked away, and I hear he was shooting with my oldest daughter. And I remember my daughter goes ready to get shoot, to shoot, and she was on target. And he's like, don't put your finger on the trigger. And, like, just, I think, instilling that within them that um, – and I know for a lot of old people, too. Like, we were talking to my dad. My dad's, like, almost 70. And he was taking his firearm safety course. And the question when we were growing up was, what's what's the proper way to hold your gun, right? And it was usually, or it was usually pointed down or pointed up, or that's it. now it's the safest direction because pointing down may not be the safest direction, or pointing up might not be the safe, safest direction. And so I think um, I like how you guys rewarded that and really put like whatever is safest. Right, and then from the you know from Marine Corps experience, if you're in a helicopter, you don't want to point it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you're because then you go down. And I just remember one of the most in time, the t- time where I was probably probably most drawn to you was when you were hunting, I believe it was quail season, and you're walking through the Palo Verde Ecological Reserve ponds off of Second Avenue, and your daughter was along for the walk. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I saw a mirror image of myself and my daughter, and I said, "This is a cool dude. I got to talk to him more today." <laughs> yeah, and I think, and I think the best part too was teaching my daughter what to do when you approached. Great. Um, like, I think when you got there, my gun was already unloaded and my license was already out. And I think that's a big thing. Even in the field, when we, I, you visited us last year in the dove fields, you came over, uh, we had a brand new hunter. He was like 10 years old named, uh, Darren. And you actually took a picture with him and I posted it on social media. And I remember he pulls up and he, he was, he was getting all nervous because, you know, his dad's like, okay, well that's, that's fish and wildlife. That's it. Yeah. It's a, you know, a game officer. And he's like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And I was, I was like, well, first of all, you're going to unload your gun. 
he's like, okay. So he unloads his gun. And I said, okay, now you're going to get your fit, your hunting license out and you're going to get, and I remember you came over, we're talking and he was sitting there holding his hunting license and you were just chatting. And finally I go, Hey, will you check his license? You're like, Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was so excited that you checked his license and that, you know, I remember you, that. and you checked his gun and you know, you put the two in there to make sure that there was no, that there was a plug in there. And I think for him, it was a huge moment. I was talking to his dad cause they're coming out. They're, they're going to be out here this, this week also. And he goes, he was so excited because he was telling people like, Oh, I got checked and I was right. And, and I think that's where you're building that confidence. You saw a reflection and I'm sitting there going, okay, that, how can I teach this as a teaching moment to my daughter? As like, Hey, get all ready to go. Because I mean, how many times do people just hand you a loaded gun? Like, Oh, here, check it. I mean, it's, and yes, there's, even when there's doves flying over, I remember one year I was out here and this gentleman was out here and they were walked up and I was unloading my gun. He's like, shoot that dove first. Right. And I shot, he's like, okay, great. And I, and he's like, well, now your gun's unloaded, hand it to me, go pick up your bird. And, and I think that's where it is too, where you guys are excited to see people succeed. You're excited to see little kids get out there. I mean, he was showing you his one and only bird and you were so excited for him. That's what he remembers is you, not his dad, not me, but like an officer being excited for his white wing that he shot and you looking at it and telling him all about it. So yeah, next season when we both meet, meet each other again, we'll be equally excited to see each other and hope, right. you know, have a good time. Right. And I think that's the best part is getting to know your officers in your guys' area and really understanding that. Um, the next question is something that you just got promoted to. And I actually had about 50 people ask me, what is Caltip? It's on the back of my license. And so I think since you got promoted to it, this is a great opportunity for a lot of people to understand what is Caltip? How do we use it? Why is it on the back of our license? Why is it so accessible to us? And why is the number so easy to call? It's a phone number every hunter should have in their phone. So if you put that, if you're listening to this podcast and you put that number in your phone right now, that would be great. It's 888-334-2258. And it's, a, it's for reporting um, either unethical or unlawful behavior you see in the field. And you can do it anonymously. It's a secret w witness program. But you can also, down the road, receive an award if you so choose um, to be nominated for one. And the Caltip committee is a nonprofit uh, committee unassociated with our department. They raise funds privately or through uh, county fish and game commissions, and they reward reporting parties who call the Caltip number and um, to, when it becomes a case that could be prosecuted um, by the courts. And uh, in addition to that, there's a tip for one number. So we're having access from all different directions. So if you, you can go on your phone and download the the tip form one app. It has a really cool icon with a green square and a deer head. Um, that'll be on your phone. And if you, you could use that the same way. Caltip is for 24 seven, 365 days a week. If you see something in progress, call that phone number. If it is maybe someone, um, maybe that, that a crime that's not happening, um, now, but something, some information you may have, then you can, um, submit a, report on the online through our website or texting the tip form one number. And, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, a it's available in different through different medias in order to make it accessible to everyone. And I think the biggest thing, one of the important things, like you said, is you can be anonymous. So if it is somebody that, you know, um, that's breaking the law and harming, you know, an animal or doing stuff that they shouldn't do, this is an opportunity for you to step up and I know that I was talking to you earlier about a case that's going on and here in central Northern California that you were a part of. And, you know, the guy was rewarded for turning in, um, a bunch of a party that was, you know, party hunting deer out of season with weapons they shouldn't hunt and ammo they shouldn't hunt. And I think that's a, that's a huge thing because as non hunters and anti hunters, I think there's a big difference between non hunters and anti hunters when they see stuff like that on the news the first thing they do is come after us as hunters. Um, the ethical hunters, the lawful hunters, the hunters who are doing everything correctly, we're the ones that get slammed. You know, me on social media getting 100 death threats, even though I do everything correctly, because they saw or they heard something. And so by this Caltip number, it's saying that this is our opportunity to step up as hunters and fishermen and outdoorsmen and enthusiasts and say, hey, this needs to stop and really kind of turn those people that we see, you know, individuals that we know or we don't know and situations that we've seen or haven't seen um, in to be investigated. Because sometimes you might have just seen something wrong. 
you know, investigations like, well, no, they had permission. They had this, they had that. But even if you see someone on, you know, private property, it's a great, and they're not supposed to be there. It's a great person to call. Right. Right. So for the, the blight dove opener, the most, um, the best, uh, Cal tip reports we've had have to do with people going out in the morning, getting a limit. And then someone hunting the same area in which they're hunting, they see them come back out in the afternoon and, you know, kill more birds. Mm. And they're trying to, you know, um, hide the fact that they're basically what we call double dipping, taking an over limit of, um, doves. And so, you know, when you come out here, you should know that the limit for morning dove and white wing is a total of 15. There can be no more than 10, 10 white wing. Exactly. And, uh, you should come out prepared knowing what that you can, you can't shoot half hour before sunrise and, the probably the biggest mistake hunters make on the dove opener is not knowing that the time limit to stop hunting is sunset. It is not half hour after sunset. Right. And and that's all in the regulations that you look at. Uh, but people get so caught up, caught up in the fact that, I mean, we've, we've used that number many a times. Um, we had one where, I mean, you, you came out and took care of the situation. There was a guy that was in the field, public field, and he was drinking since before. And we all got them feel the thing at three o'clock in the morning. Cause it's, it was nuts. And it was opener was on a Sunday. So it was just a madhouse. And this dude had started drinking at three o'clock in the morning. And by the time it was shoot, I mean, he walked in on my dad and was shooting towards my dad at my dad. Finally, we called, you know, and they came out and they tried to hide the fact he was drinking, but there was 30 cans of beer, you know, empty cans in the bushes. And so it's, it's all that stuff. It's for your safety. It's for everyone's safety. Um, or even if you see people who are, we were out there and a guy didn't have a plug-in and he was shooting boom, 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 boom. And it's not fair. It's not right. It's not legal. And so it's a great opportunity to go out there and educate. Um, and especially that, that double limits, I can see people, you know, I know for a fact, people that do that, that we've had to go yell at, we're like, Hey, weren't, didn't, didn't you say you limited out and now you're back out here? Cause usually I'll take my daughter back out in the evening when it's not crazy and that let her shoot and have fun and I'll walk out and get the birds and you see that same guy show up and you're like, wait a minute. I know for a fact that you, Oh, I know I was just out here to pick up shells with a loaded shotgun. And so that's a great time to call and really kind of just educate. And in the Blythe area, there's the Colorado river Indian tribes area where you would need a hunting license to hunt that specific land. There's a Arizona's right across the river. So you need a, if you're a California resident, you would need a non-resident Arizona license to hunt over there. And then, of course, if you're a California resident and you have your California resident hunting license, um, you must know that regardless of where you're hunting and you could be hunting all day in all three different areas, the total number of birds you can kill by the end of the first day is 15. And that's a federal regulation. And so when it goes, that's your bag limit for the day. The second day of the season, your bag limit would be 30. And your third day of the season, your bag limit would be 45. And so at that point, if you have 45 birds in your possession, that includes your refrigerator at home, um, the cooler in your truck, then you would have to stop hunting until you either consume those birds or gave them to another um, person. Yeah. And in, it gets kind of confusing with a lot of people because it says triple your daily bag limit on the actual regulations. And so as Matt was saying, triple the daily bag limit is meaning three days worth of animals in your possession. Be that dove, be that quail, be that pheasant. Even we see guys that are lobster fishing down by us in Long Beach and they'll go out there for four days in a row, even though it's double the daily bag limit for, you know, lobster. So you can only have 14 in your, in your possession at one time and they'll sit there and they'll go out four days in a row and just put them in their freezer. Well, technically that's illegal. You know, they're like, Oh, well, my son has a fishing license. Well, your son's not out there fishing with you and you're still out here fishing and, you know, it's still your limit. Right. And in some places, the bag limit and the possession limit is the same. Right. And so it's something you constantly have to monitor. And our, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife website is so user-friendly now that you can go onto it, hit fishing, hit the species or the place in which you're fishing, and it'll very simply explain the regulations to you. And if you have any questions, you know, call a representative from the California Department of Fish and Wildlife or call a more experienced fisherman or hunter. Yeah. And I mean, I get phone calls and text messages and emails during season like crazy. Hey, what's the rule on this? What's the, you know, buddy's like, he shot a deer and he goes, Hey, or he was going to shoot a deer. He goes, Hey, when's the shoot time? When can I stop shooting? I said, you have 18 minutes. Awesome. And he was like, okay, I gotta go. And he shot a deer, you know, cause he was like looking at a deer crossing at the path 
And I was like, you literally have 18 minutes to shoot a deer or you're done for the night. And now I'll give your audience no excuse not to be able to email someone. The question is my email address is at the bottom of the Caltip page on our department website. And so if you have any questions, feel free to email me and I'll get back to you. Yeah. And he, and he will too. And if he doesn't, then reach out to me and I'll, I'll text him and say, Hey jerk, someone emailed you, get on that. Uh, (laughs) And he'd be like, Oh crap. Um, (laughs) But this was, I, I thought this one was actually a pretty good one. Um, How can I get involved with volunteering in my state? And this question was very broad. People talked about um, how can they get involved with uh, running dogs for programs? How can they get involved for um, brushing up wildlife areas for waterfowl? And so I kind of just encompassed that, like, how, how, how can people get involved? Is there a number? Is there an email someone can reach out to to get volunteering in our state with wildlife? The easiest way to do it would be to go through our website. And then uh, in that has a lot to do with what's locally available. Um, along the coast, there's cities with the Natural Resource Volunteer Program. That's a great um, place to get started. And also our hunter education program is a great uh, place to get started. So you can either be a hunter uh, instructor, hunter education instructor, or you can use them as a resource to find out exactly what's available in your area. But uh, if you go to our website, contact um, the local office and uh, go from there. And I know too, you can actually look up the offices that are closest to you and you can actually go directly in there and talk to people. So if you're in, you know, the coastal area from, you know, San Clemente down to Long Beach, you know, you can go down to Los Alamitos and walk into the agency and they have stuff there. They've got programs that you can volunteer with, with from beach cleanup all the way down to, you know, tagging, you know, you can come out here and tag and uh, ban doves you know, and, and really be a part of that. There's all those aspects of it from fishing to hunting and along there. So I think that was a great question. Uh, what programs do, or does, uh, department of fish and wildlife have for women, kids, and disabled folks? Again, the hunter safety, I, I have to, um, give an attaboy to the hunter safety program because they're making programs and hunting clinics available to everyone. So they'll have, um, programs specifically for, um, hunter education for the youth um, throughout the state, um, specifically for women, um, whether inexperienced or experienced hunters, they'll have workshops on um, hunting big game, uh, pigs along the coast and whatnot. And uh, I just um, saw on our um, department uh, website, or maybe it was um, coming from directly from someone who works over at the Santa Santa Wildlife Area. They just finished a a great looking handicap blind. Oh, good. And, how, how on? I think it's blind A two. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, oh, trust awesome. me, I know. Yeah, I got. I know uh, Tom really well. Yeah, so Tom doesn't it, mess around over there. And he said he's retiring this year, which is so sad because he's one of the best guys. But he sent it to me, and I was like, "Well, I got better find a handicap person because that blind is, and it's and A two is an amazing spot to hunt." And so now it's, they have cup holders, they had shotgun like little things. They had places for your shells. And I was sitting there going, ah, gosh, but yeah, no, that's a hundred percent. And I know that you can also go on there. Like we talked about it in the earlier, um, when you go on to buy your tags, there's, um, different specialty hunts. You can go on there and some of those are geared directly towards kids and families. So day one is you bring in your new hunter and it, it is prioritized with new hunters. So say your kid just gets a just gets his fishing license or hunting license, they're prioritized versus any other kid, like my kid who's had it for a while. They're going to be the ones that are looked at and drawn first because they're the ones they want to get out there. And that's another great opportunity for you guys to volunteer is you can volunteer running dogs, you can volunteer running check-in, cleaning stations, um, checking license, all that good stuff. You can volunteer and do that. And again, you can find all that on the website. And if you're not listening in California, I know for a fact that Texas has programs like that. Uh, Mississippi has programs like that. Alabama, they just reached out to me to help them with, um, with a food, uh, with developing recipes for people to learn how to, how to cook better wild game. And through that, they're going to have people that will actually go to your house or go to programs and teach them how to cook specific. And that's in Alabama. So every state really is gearing towards that. Um, you're, every state also has what's called an R3 program. You know what R3 is, correct? Yeah, recruitment, retention, and Reta- and yeah, and then retain. Right. So how do we how do we retain? How do we recruit? And how do we you know? And so every state now um, has is getting funding for that. I've been a big part of that. I'm part of the California R3 board, 
And so I know for a fact that we're all about getting that recruitment in and getting that retaining and, and keeping people hunting and fishing. So you can also reach out to us along that line and we'll, I'll, I'll point you in the right directions in California or any state, because I know I have a list of every, everyone who's in charge in every state that's part of that R3 program. So is it reactivation, recruitment and retention? Yeah. So getting people that were out of hunting, back in hunting. Arizona also has a great program. Uh, Oh yeah. We we talked about that because, um, and there's amazing programs that a lot of these states have with that R3 program and NWTF, the national wild turkey federation is really pushing hard. Um, these programs and they're, they're actually putting biologists now with these R3 programs to help develop better, uh, turkey programs and, and get people involved that way. So, um, many opportunities for you to get out there and do stuff and be a part of stuff. Uh, if we keep going on, I thought this was kind of a good one. I had no idea. Does department of fish and wild game have a ride along program like other law enforcement's? I just spoke at the Palo Verde College last night, and a young man came up to me and, and asked about that. And uh, now that c- the COVID, we're kind of post-COVID, and we're re-upping our ride-along program. And so uh, basically you'll want to uh, reach out to your local game warden or wildlife officer, and um, they fill out a form with your information and get approval through their chain of command, and then you set up a date with them in order to go on a ride-along. And uh, the... One caveat is, you know, it's, um, it's not so much for anyone. It's for someone who's interested in the wildlife officer profession. Awesome. I know that, you know, law enforcement does the same thing. You know, I do. A lot of times my buddy will just call me like, hey, come right along. I'm bored this night. Like, All right, go. I'll go fill out the paperwork and go sit in the squad car with them and just drive around, pull people over and give them, you know, speeding tickets. But it's a good time. Um, do you prefer that hunters use online and GPS over paper maps for landowner and public land lines? I think it's a matter of whatever works for them. So if they're obviously in the location they're supposed to hunt, then fantastic. If they're having trouble, um, with exactly the boundaries for the area they're hunting and they're trying to use a map, then, you know, upgrade to, a to a smartphone app in which are, which are very ac- accurate. You've mentioned Onyx earlier and um a lot of hunters are using that in the field and the lines i haven't found a problem um with boundaries on that that app and i'm sure there may be other ones i'm not sure whether what they are yeah there's there's you can go over like hunt wise you can go for onyx there's a bunch out there um and i know for me personally i have to say that the online ones have really been a game changer when it comes to um understanding boundary lines and really getting to know landowners and getting to introduce yourself and getting to be a part of that. And I know personally I was hunting up in Julian area with a buddy and, um, we were hunting. There's so many boundary lines with private and public land up in that area, in the Palomar mountain district. And we were hunting and he ended up shooting a big deer and it was right on a fence line and it had fallen and we were so excited. I'm like, yes, you know, and for me personally, it's something that if you're listening, you should do also, as soon as you start hunting, put on your track and let that track run the entire time. Because what happened in the story and a game officer, this was the best situation. And so we got the deer, we went back into Julian and we had breakfast and in the back of my truck were these big old rack of antlers, right? Well, apparently that was the city deer. That was the deer that everyone knew. He never left. He never went on public land. He was always on private land, always eating apples, fill in the blank, right? And so I'm at the whole town in the morning is around my truck getting pissed off. And they call Fish and Wildlife. They call the sheriff. They come out, Fish and Wildlife say, hey, yeah, I, I, I always see this deer in private land. He never crosses. And I'm like, dude, I've got video and I have this and I hand it to my Onyx. And he goes, is this your trek? And he clicked it and he saw the time. And he saw where, so he drove out there with us with like half the town and he walked our exact track back to where the gut pile was and the deer dropped in its tracks and it was a good 50 yards from the fence line. And he goes, yeah, okay. You guys are good. Thanks a lot. Let me, let me sign your deer tag. Here you go. Here's my card in case anyone fights you on it here. And my buddy was still freaking out. He's like, oh my gosh. I go, we did nothing wrong. Like everything's legal. And the city was, or the town's like, oh, they must have baited. They must have this. They must and I'm like, you can see where I'm at. You could see where we had dug in, where we brushed in, where we, and I go, we were sitting there shot here and he walked our entire track and he was like, 
perfect. You guys are great. Have a good day. And so in that, in that instance, I think really having that digital copy. And Absolutely. I, now, I, now I still, you can pay $4 and get a paper copy from the BLM and they've got all your, they've got all the public land listed there. I still have that paper map in my bag because I still like it and I still want to open it up and still really kind of see the topography. But I also have that app running. It saved us in Wyoming many a times too. Landowners come running up. We're like, no, nope, here's our track. They're like, oh, you're good. Have a good day. Keep driving. And so once you know the rules, it really makes hunting so much more enjoyable and so much easier. And especially if you can um, show the effort you're putting in to, you know, to your hunt, when you're speaking with a wildlife officer, they're going to appreciate that much more. And you're going to have a much better relationship with them versus winging it and not having a map, not having that phone app available. And, uh, you know, like we discussed at the beginning of this interview is if you go out prepared, you're going to be in a much better situation. And I think if you go into it being completely open and honest too. Absolutely. And I think that goes, my dad was saying he was watching, was that like Texas law or Texas fishing game? You know, that one they have. And he goes, it was, we were talking about that on the drive up here. He goes, it's funny how many of these rednecks lie, 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 lie until they get caught. And they're like, well, and the officer's like, why don't you just tell me this in the beginning? It would have just been a warning. Now it's a ticket. Now I'm taking your gun. Now, you know, like, and cause mistakes happen, you know, you're out here and you're shooting dove and that, that little Inca Mexican dove comes flying in. If, again, if you're hunting dove and blight, there's a little dove here. It has orange on its wings. Can't shoot it. Don't shoot it. Got it. That's clear. But if a mistake happens, because it does look like a little morning dove coming in, be honest, call it, call it in, you know, be honest and open with it. Don't try to dig, dig a hole and bury it. Cause then that's where, that's where it becomes right. really, you, really if, bad. If your integrity is intact, then you allow the officer in the field to make dis use his discretion. And then you have layers of discretion beyond that. Then the district attorney, if it goes that far, they can use their discretion and see what your intent was. And then, you know, then, you know, a judge, for example, they, you have three layers of people who see that you're trying to do the right thing and, and you've kept your integrity intact. Another uh, huge um, instance when integrity is important is getting hired as a wildlife officer. I've done two background investigations this year, and uh, I did that uh, talk at the Palo Verde College last night. People are interested in becoming wildlife officers. Despite what you've done in the past, be honest and make good decisions now, and you're much more likely. If you're going through the hiring process, you may not get picked up this time because of something you've done in your recent past, but if a little time goes by and you've been honest about it now and in the future, then you're like the likelihood that you get picked up as an officer with our department or another department becomes much higher. Yeah. And there was a kid that I was hunting with in San Antonio, Texas. He was a gangbanger, did a bunch of crazy stuff, um, got clean, took him on this youth hunt. He loved hunting, dove headfirst into it, started getting, you know, started doing ride along programs with fish and wildlife out there. And like you were saying, he was honest with all the stuff he had done with all his records. And he just got signed, you know, sworn in last year. And I remember he called me like in tears. Well, it took five years of him putting in the effort and the work saying, this is who I am now doing volunteer programs, doing ride alongs, but now he's in his dream job. Perfect example. And he was, you know, and he screwed up his life in the first half of his life, but he said, Hey, and I, and the, his officer that was training him said the same thing is like, when you walked into my office and you said, this is who I was and this is who I want to be. Then I knew exactly who I, who I could work with. And for the past five years, you've shown to me who you want to be. And so I, I'm going to back you and I'm going to put my faith into you and I'm going to put my name on you. And you know, when he got sworn in and he passed everything, which I think is huge when it comes into like our next question is like, why do you think so many people have such a you know trepidation towards wildlife agents um, in general? Like, and it's really comforting to go into the field and see that, you know, people aren't afraid or aren't worried when you come up and talk to them. And I could only um, suggest that the peop why people do have interpretation is um, because they haven't prepared themselves. They haven't uh, reviewed the laws the, the way they should. Um, they haven't uh, made good decisions up until that point throughout the day. And, uh, you know... One, and once, if they if they have made good decisions and then maybe they they just aren't as prepared as they should be, by the end of the conversation with the wildlife officer, they'll see that you know you can ask the questions and help that that wildlife officer is there to help you prepare to make the next good decision when it comes to hunting or fishing, and uh, you know 
be a good conservationist in California. Yeah, and I think, like I was talking about earlier, it w- it's preparing the younger generation and the newer hunters to not be afraid and not be scared when the when the truck pulls up um, and what to do and how to handle yourself. And like you were saying, if you've done everything right throughout the day, there's nothing to fear and be afraid of. You know, when you're driving your car and a, a cop pulls behind you, you start thinking about everything you did in the day. Oh my gosh, did I, did I brush my teeth? Did I, you know? But at the end of the day, if you did nothing wrong, he's just going to go right past you and do everything else. He's just running, you know, running the plates. And in a sense, you guys are doing the same thing. You guys are coming up, running our plates, making sure that we're in the field legally, um, that you're checking to make sure that we have our steel ammo, not our, you know, not our lead. And then you guys go on your way. And I think that's where this, this misinterpretation comes in because they do watch that Texas law or whatever. And all they see is the bad stuff. It's just like watching cops and only seeing what cops do bad, not seeing all the good stuff they do. And, and I can be here telling you guys hundred percent. I know a lot of game agents and field agents and wildlife agents and officers within that departments in California and half the other States and 99.9.9% of them are awesome. Ladies and guys, there's always that 1% of that guy. You're like, you're just, you're just out. Aren't you? Yeah, I've just had a bad day. Um, so I think on that thing is if you see an agent in the field, walk up, say hi, introduce yourself. You might get a really good friend like Matt and I became just by him pulling up and seeing me and my daughter walking in the, in the, duck, in the duck fields and getting to know each other and getting to hang out and getting to talk to each other and you know, telling him where we're going to hunt tomorrow and hoping he comes by and says hi. That's a and, great suggestion. If, you see, if you're planning to hunt later that day and you see a wildlife officer, that's a good time to introduce yourself because now you've made that initial you know, um, meet and uh, it'll be a much more comfortable situation when um, you see each other again in the field. And even for the fact too, like, like I told you, I take my daughter out to hunt in the evenings because I just don't like the craziness and it's so hot and she gets angry, but I've been out here where agents will come, you know, officers will come out to us and they'll walk. Oh, I already saw you this morning. Oh, I was like, well, here's my daughter. Check. Oh no. I was like, no, go ahead and check her. And because the fact that, you know, you get already get to know these people and you'll see them day in and day out. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's huge and getting, getting there, getting a card. I know for me, every Every officer I, I run into, I'm like, hey, let, let me, you know, let me get your card. Because that way you just feel like if something is happening or if you need to talk to someone directly in that area, you feel a lot more comfortable ca- calling that person and be like, hey, I messed up. Right. You already- and, and if you can't get a hold of them and you call the Caltip number, that officer will be the uh, most likely person to get back to you. Right, because they're in that area. Right. So you already you already have that that name. So. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end of it. So if you could leave a new hunter with one word of encouragement, what would it be? Be that a veteran, be that a newbie, be that someone that hasn't come out in a long time, part of that whole R3 aspect. I think it's uh, what a lot of people don't admit. It's the number one reason people like to fish and hunt is to be in the outdoors and enjoy other people's company. So don't go out there with the, with any sort of pressure on your shoulders, um, that you, where you feel you would have to kill something, you know, go out there, enjoy the experience with friends, family in the outdoors and choose good mentors to be with and good friends to be with that don't put you under that amount of pressure and you'll have a great time hunting and, uh, uh, hunting with family and friends. Yeah. Unless you lobster with us, then it's the first, (laughs) the first seven. We always say the first seven are mine. Um, so if I take you out first seven are mine, I don't care if, if you catch them. It's that's the boat fee. That's the, uh, that's the boat taxes, the lobster. But no, I, I appreciate you sitting down. I appreciate you coming on. And I know that um, you, you know, your phone number's on the bottom of that cow or your email's on the bottom of that cow tip stuff. So if you want to reach out to Matt and ask him a question or just say thank you for what he's doing, uh, feel free to do it and he'll be there to answer. You can always ask me questions too. I'm going to put links in all this in the bottom of the show notes so you'll be able to see it in, in our state. Um, if you're not in California, go ahead and search where you're at. If you're not in the, in, in the United States, reach out to one of your local providences in Canada or any one of these countries and see what your local game laws are um, and get to know those agents because they are there for your safety. Um, they're there for the animal's safety and they're there for the habitat that your animals are living in. So the more comfortable you are with them, the better it is. And, you know, don't fear them because they have a badge aspect of it. So I appreciate you coming on, Matt, and, and talking. Is there anything you want to say before you get out of here or? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, don't forget, please download the number in your phone, Caltip 
888-334-2258. And if you do it, this is my last tip of the day. If you do transport someone else's doves, you can put them in a bag. You have to label them with that hunter's name, address, hunting license number, kinds and numbers of birds, date, location of kill, and have their signature on that. That's the only time you can transport someone else's birds. Otherwise, they are in your possession and you're responsible for them. I did I did have someone reach out and ask if they are if they're plucking their birds do they have to leave a feather on and I said yes because it still identifies because a white wing and a morning dove they can look exactly the same except for that wing pattern correct Absolutely leave okay. an identifiable feature on them it's the easiest to leave one wing on them and uh so yeah do not do not take all the feathers off your birds. Otherwise, they'll be indistinguishable. Uh, sometimes you can tell between a larger white wing and a morning dove, but uh, you can't confirm that after the feathers are taken off. So leave a feathered wing on your doves. Right, and it's not that hard. I mean, you can, pl- you can pluck everything up, and as long as you leave that white line that shows that it's a, that it's a white wing, you can tell, um, and the feathers pull off super easy. So, because someone asked me, uh, about that question, I said, yes. And they said, well, ask the officer. And I was like, all right, fine. Um, but yes, and that, and that applies to all birds you're transferring. So if you're transferring waterfowl during waterfowl season, it's the same deal. You got to leave that wing on, um, to identify that you can leave heads on, but wings are a lot easier just to leave one wing. Exactly. Whatever it allows you yeah. to, uh, whatever allows a wildlife officer to identify that species of bird. So wings are the easiest, um, but yeah, so appreciate it. If you do see us out here on this open, or if you listen to this, try to stop by, try to say hi. If you see Matt or any one of his other officers out here, make sure you say hi and make sure that you give them a word of encouragement and a bottle of cold water because it's like 197 degrees out here. So again, Matt, thank you, thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Later.